Hello and welcome to Handel Hendricks Unlocked, a podcast from Handel Hendricks in London in partnership with Art Fund. Here's another edition of the podcast, this time with journalist, broadcaster and writer, the fantastic Jenny Kleeman. Jenny's latest book has the amazing title, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death. It's an amazing book and we had a great chat about how technology continues to change our world and specifically its effects on music. Jenny is also a massive Hendrix fan, so it's great to hear how he has inspired her and continues to do so. So here's Handel Hendrix Unlocked with Jenny Kleeman. Okay, so welcome to the Handel Hendrix podcast. I'm here with Jenny Kleeman. Hi, Jenny. Hello. <laughs> how are you today? I am very well. Good, good. Shall I introduce myself now? Yeah, why not? <laughs> I'm Jenny Kleeman. I am a journalist, a broadcaster and an author. I first came here just after it opened. I came with my son and I knew that I could probably try and get in for free as a journalist, but I didn't do that. So um, I, I have actually paid to come in here many, many times, which is why it's very exciting to uh, have a free tour today. Um, and uh, I think I've been here about six or seven times um, and brought my children here. My children really love it here. I've been here um, with friends. I love the Handel stuff as much as the Hendrix stuff because it's just so incredibly um, weird and wonderful that they shared this space. And also as a Londoner, I love it here because it says so much about the history of London and this part of London and the kind of romance that London has had for you know, international musicians for centuries. So I love it as a music fan and I love it as a Londoner and I love it as a mother. Amazing. So first of all, I thought we would just talk a little bit about sort of music in general, mm. like what your, what your music tastes are. So like, how did you get introduced to music, I suppose? And what was your first sort of, yeah. Well, I first discovered music when I was quite young. I'm the youngest of four sisters and I used to listen to my sister's music. My sisters were very into kind of David Bowie and oh, The nice. Cure and music of the time. And then, so there's a book by the KLF about how to have a number one single. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like a formula for it. And there's a line in it which says, everybody thinks there was some golden age of music and it corresponds exactly to when you were 13 years old. And don't be fooled, <laughs> this is just to do with what was happening in your life. So when I was yeah. 13 years old, the music that was really big was kind of grunge music, rock music from the West Coast of America. So I got very, very into um, all of that, very into the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who aren't really grunge, but I was very, very into them. Uh, nice. Very into uh, Pearl Jam and bands like that. And in fact, I think I learned the skills that I've got to be a journalist because I was so completely absorbed in this world of music when I was younger. Yeah. I had to research these bands because I just had an insatiable appetite for it. And there was no internet back then. We talk about yeah. the early 90s then. So I just became really resourceful and I became really good at, like I'd write off to magazines and ask for back issues of things. And I'd comb the inner sleeve notes to see who, who was thanked all the time. And the person who was thanked all the time everywhere was Jimi Hendrix. So I, I would kind of moved backwards from the, the bands that I was listening to, to the bands that inspired them. And that's how I discovered wow. Jimi Hendrix. That's a really interesting way of discovering. So it wasn't something that was on in the house. No, not at like all. That. My parents are really into opera. My parents are ah. very excited that I'm here because of Handel. Wow. Um, but no, and, and, and even my older sisters, they weren't, into, they weren't into that kind of music at all. But I really liked guitars and guitar music. And I think if you like guitar music, ultimately you'll always end up discovering Jimi Hendrix. So I yeah. discovered Jimi Hendrix really quite young um, and was just overwhelmed by how, how 
great it was and how kind of timeless it was and how fresh it sounded, mm. even though I was listening to it, you know, uh, in the 90s when I was sort of 13. Yeah. So was there, was there an album that you bought or that you... Um, came across I bought uh, I bought uh, I bought them in the obvious order so I bought Are You Experienced and then I bought Elect uh, then I bought um, Axis Boulder's Love but then I bought Electric Ladyland which is my total oh, okay, total yeah. favourite and in fact <laughs> it's, it's been my favourite for a really long time but in fact and this is going to this is I'm revealing too much information but it's the truth <laughs> when both of my children were born I made sure that the first song they heard <laughs> Wow. was 1983 A Merman I Should Turn To Be from Electric oh, because I think it's the most perfect piece of music. Was ever. it all 13? It's like 13 minutes It's 13 long, minutes, yes. It? And I, I made, in fact, my daughter, <laughs> who's second, she was born, that was playing in the background when she was born, but my son, uh, um, I just put it on after he was born. So nice. So that's, yes, you're all going to think I'm very weird now. <laughs> no. but that's how seriously I take it. I, so I think Electric Lady Land, because it's so weird and they aren't kind of, they're kind of jams and he's yeah. kind of Jimmy, it's Jimi Hendrix Unleashed that you kind of see the kind of pure, yeah. weird genius of him. And I, I, and I just think, um, I think he's Shakespeare of the guitar in that he, he taps into something timeless about humanity that he's able to express that, at any time or place you just respond to instinctively mm. yeah it's, it seems like the first time from sort of looking at interviews and things with him at the time that's the first time he's actually quite happy yes with a record yes and and you can understand why his British producers who he was working with on the previous records would have been really frustrated with him if that was what he was trying to do because these yeah. are not three minute pop songs no. they're kind of meandering diversions you know bordering yeah. on on jazz but some of it is so incredibly beautiful and it takes you know transports you to a to another place yeah. so yeah that's my favorite album and then at the end of the, all that it's got like voodoo child yes like yes end, just voodoo like, child, which i think is the beginning of heavy metal yeah i think voodoo child oh, right, yeah. is the beginning of heavy metal because if you listen to it it's basically heavy metal but it's yeah. all the stuff that i only so I still listen to the music that I listened to when I was 13 and some of it I have to discard because it is rubbish or, you know, all the oh, lyrics are rubbish. What, what's that then? Oh God, I don't want to say, those are still very close so yeah, to my this heart. This is the embarrassing part. Yeah, no, um, but, but some of it I still listen to because I like the kind of musical intensity, even though lyrics that I thought were very profound when I was yeah. 13, I discover are not. <laughs> Whereas there are very few things that I still hold in, in the same esteem. I still love the Smashing Pumpkins, even though I might yeah. not agree with the politics of the lead singer now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, Jimi Hendrix is, is the thing that is just consistently timeless to me. And mm. my kids love it, not just because I've rammed it down their throats ever since literally birth. <laughs> <laughs> they do really, really love it because you, you can, there's a, you could just hear how it inspired such a huge variety of different kinds of music. Like, You'd listen to kind of like Funkadelic is massive. The guitarist for Funkadelic is uh, Eddie Hazel, massively inspired by Jimi Hendrix. So even incredibly funky music, even incredibly, you know, if you were to remove all of the soul of the funk and it's just mm. heavy metal, that is inspired by it. If you like music that comes from guitars, then you've got to pay homage to Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. <laughs> and you, how old are you? Were you at 13 when you uh, listened? Yes, I was 13 when I first discovered nice. it. That's impressive, I think, to get into it. Like, I was a very age. intense kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I took it very, very seriously. And I used to yeah. save up my money because I grew up in London and I'd come on the bus down to Oxford Circus and go to the HMV and buy cassettes. Nice. Yeah, I'm really aging myself here. Well, <laughs> giving away far too much about my age. But I would go and save up and buy cassettes and listen to them and, and sort of study them and really comb through the inner sleeve notes and read all the lyrics and, yeah. and learn everything there was to know. Nice. So what was your first 
live performance then? <gasps> first, what's the first gig you went to? In 1993, I saw Prince. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> no, your in fact, it wasn't 1992, it was 1992. Wow, that's your first gig? That was my first gig, and my second Amazing. gig was The Cure. And this is the joy about growing up in London. Wow. I've seen so many fantastic bands, and I used to go all the time and see absolutely everything. And um, I really believe that you just, even if you're seeing a band that's really rubbish, it's still really good for you because your brain mm. trips out and you make connections with thoughts and you can, you know, you get incredible ideas going to see live music. So I've grown up seeing a lot of live music. And yeah, when I was younger, I used to just go and see everything. <laughs> but I think, I think bad gigs are sometimes the ones that I remember mm. the most. Definitely. Yes, yes totally. And they make a big impression on you. Yes. In other ways, I think. They do, but you, you always get ideas from it. And again, I mean, yeah. gosh, I'm sounding like an old nostalgic fart here, but again, <laughs> um, it was a very precious time in the 90s where nobody had phones. Mm. And so you were there for that moment. And it, I remember going to see, I mean, yeah, so I saw Prince in 1992. And then in 1993, I saw loads of bands, like I saw Pearl Jam and I saw Smashing Pumpkins and loads of different bands and I remember that when we went to see Pearl Jam it cost £12 for a ticket I really am sounding old here but it wasn't this whole thing that that's how the music industry is run that that's how you make money is through ticket sales yeah, you, made, yeah. you made money through selling albums so it was this incredible feeling of anyone could be there and uh, you were all there just for that moment and it wasn't about capturing the moment so that you could show it to other people afterwards yeah. or savour it afterwards it was about being part of that thing and it broadened my horizons so much because I had quite a privileged life in in growing up in London and I just learned I just made friends with all sorts of different people and you know mm. I had my two girlfriends who I used to go to gigs with all the time and they just I was we were this weird curiosity these little girls who we used to queue up <laughs> so that we could get in early because we couldn't see uh, unless we were at the front and so we'd wait and then run run to the front and put our arms around the barriers and yeah. go and see these you know big sweaty rock stars throwing <laughs> beer into the audience. It was amazing. <laughs> and Prince as well. Like what, and Prince, what, yes. What was, what was Prince like? It was absolutely incredible. I've seen Prince quite a few times. Prince, yeah. I was devastated, devastated when, when Prince died because I think he's one of the, there are a few left, but I think he's one of the last kind of musical geniuses that, yeah. that, that to pass away of people who just have it bursting through every pore. And uh, yeah. he was incredible. I mean, he was just... It was in Earl's Court and we didn't have great tickets. And I was with my friend, she, would, she had tickets for her birthday and there was like three of us there. And I just remember they did, they did Purple Rain and there was purple ticker tape coming from the, the ceiling and being 13 and thinking, this is just the most this incredible the thing I've ever yeah. seen. So that's where it all started. But then, you know, so the box office Star Green that used to be really near here in, in Oxford Circus. Oh, right. Okay. They used to publish this... Uh, sheet of paper where you could go and you know you could go and see the upcoming gigs and it was mm. quite easy to get tickets they were cheap and they didn't sell out quickly there wasn't this kind of racket for selling things on and so it was really accessible yeah oh that is the worst like the worst thing about tickets now it's, is awful. The, it's yeah it's so expensive there are all these different tiers of access uh, yeah. so that you have to be really really rich you have to be really rich and well connected to, yeah. to get access and and it's a real shame because it was just a lovely you know it changed my life being in these kind of grimy mosh pits with all this loud music where I think my parents when I'd say to my parents I'm, I'm going to go to a concert <laughs> yeah. it was a kind of like Hanson, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's a concert. Oh, she'll sit and listen. And in fact, that's what I thought it was at first. I mean, the the Prince gig that I went to, the first one that I went to, was seated, 
And then when I went to the to see The Cure, which was the next gig that I went to, we bought a programme and I remember I was standing and I put it down at my feet because I thought, oh, I'll be able to pick this up at the end. <laughs> Not realising that I was going to be yeah. pushed around and covered in other people's <laughs> sweat. And I remember afterwards feeling like I wasn't really supposed to be there and it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Did you manage to get a hold of another programme? I'm guessing um, no, you didn't see we, it. No, we didn't. Yeah. I, got a t- I, I had a T-shirt. I bought a T-shirt as well, which I was wearing. I've still got all of these kind of oh, band nice. T-shirts. But yeah. Very cool. And what was the the best, what would you say is the best sort of live performance you've seen? <gasps> Gosh. Best and worst, maybe. The best and worst. Gosh, I, I can't. Mm. That's really difficult to say. I need to think mm. about this. Um, I've seen some really small gigs, some secret gigs. I saw uh, of the Red Hot Chili Peppers playing at the Camden Palace. Wow. I saw Jane's Addiction playing at the Camden Palace. Um, I saw... I've seen quite a few really, really amazing small things. I have to think about it, but I've seen, I mean, I should have thought about this more before I came, but I've seen, <laughs> I, in the 90s, I saw pretty much every kind of big rock band that wasn't so big that they'd have to play Wembley Arena. Yeah, it was all nice. the ones who would play at the Brixton Academy or the Astoria. Yeah. I think I probably one of the best gigs I ever saw was um, the Smashing Pumpkins at the Astoria, and I was 15 then, and there was a video like an, a, an MTV video of it and some of it's on YouTube and there's a you can see me and my friend Nina in, in part of the shots nice. 15 year old me in the front row going <laughs> yes because Billy Corgan smashed up his guitar at the end and uh, I I got a piece of it <laughs> that's, a, that's a great yeah yeah in fact I've got loads of stuff at home I've got loads of drumsticks and picks and set lists and things oh, I see, I've never caught or managed to get any of that it's probably because nobody was throwing it to you and yeah. that's probably because you weren't a, a teenage yeah. girl that that's looked hilariously out true. of place yeah. <laughs> like, and all the roadies would just give me all the stuff because I'd be at the front anyway yeah, yeah. and Chad Smith the drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers used to throw his sticks at me and I'd just catch them all <laughs> ram them down my trousers so that nobody because if you catch this stuff people descend on you yeah I can imagine it's a bit of scrap so yes. try, and get, try and keep but, hold um, of it it was yeah it was it was just totally thrilling Nice. And a really good lesson for life. Like genuinely, I mean this, like I think I have the job that I have now because when I was younger, I got really good at researching stuff, but also I got used to mixing with very, very different kinds of people. And mm. because this was before the age of the internet, I would like, if I wanted to find bootlegs of stuff or videos, I'd like make, I had pen friends of people who would make copies of, of, of VHSs of things that they'd found and they'd send me stuff and I'd send them stuff. So yeah, it was amazing. That's a really interesting because nowadays a lot of lot of how you find music is sort of just given to you. Yes, it's algorithms. I mean, yeah. if you watch videos on YouTube, the up next is incredibly clever. I mean, yeah. you can get lost down a YouTube hole of watching, you know, things I would have killed to be able to find when I was younger. Really, it's like stuff that I know is really rare that it just comes up. Yeah. Um, which is great in a way because loads of people are getting exposed to a huge variety of things, but it's a bit soulless when you think that a computer is deciding what you yeah. should be introduced to. And sometimes it's nice to have some a curveball thrown in there. And I suppose in your case, if you hadn't had, had to do all that detective work around yeah, Which the, bands you loved, you might not have developed. No, I wouldn't have developed the investigative yeah, skills that have become, that have been so important to me or the resourcefulness. You, you know, you don't have to be resourceful to find music anymore. I mean, yeah. if you think of a lot of really rare Jimi Hendrix stuff, like things that people paid so much money for to have, have a physical copy of, you can find it anywhere now if you just put it into a search box. So in, in one respect, it's great because it's 
it's yeah. it's made everything accessible but it's you lose the kind of the joy of discovering things and the skill of, of finding out how to discover things yeah definitely there's a, there's a thing at the minute as well i don't know if you've seen so there's uh, some bands have had like really obscure b-sides have then become their best songs or yes. not best songs but their most played songs yes on spotify and that's interesting because they're that's all algorithm driven is what they've sort of found out and it's picking songs based on their sort of wavelength and like them being similar to other songs. Do you see that sort of affecting how we listen to music and how? But then again, I mean, back in, back in the olden days, record companies would pick <laughs> what they thought was a hit, you know, yeah, you'd still yeah. have somebody else say, okay, this is only worth being a B-side. So I guess it was all being curated for you in one sense. It's just, I guess it's up to the individual to, to, to go beyond that and to, to look beyond that as it always was. You know? Yeah. So rather than a sort of exec doing it now, it's just a computer doing it. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So I thought we could talk about your book. I'd love a to talk bit. about my book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Jenny has written an amazing book called Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death. Mm. There's a lot of big, a lot of big things in the title. Yeah. <laughs> the entirety of human existence yes. there and some yeah. weird stuff thrown on top. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, a really, really interesting book. I don't know if you can give yes. us a little sort of overview of it. Maybe, the book or? is about um, four pieces of technology that are on the cusp of hitting the market that are going mm. to change the way we're born, the way we have relationships, uh, the food that we eat and the way that we die. And uh, so the book is in four sections, birth, food, sex, sex and death. And the, the four inventions are sex robots. What if you could have the perfect partner made to your every specification? Um, lab grown meat. So what if you could eat meat without any animal dying? Artificial wombs. What if you could have a baby without anyone being pregnant? And death machines. What if you could have a perfect painless death at the time of your choosing? So ultimately, the book is about things that sound like science fiction that are very much real. And the kind of question is, how much is humanity going to change if we outsource the most human parts of our existence to technology? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've read it and it's really, really good. Thank you. Some of the, uh, yeah, some of the really interesting things I thought. So a lot of the, I think one of the great things about it is you, you meet all these characters in there as well. I think it makes it really... Uh, accessible and interesting but a lot of them strike me as they they're quite um i have quite a pessimistic view of sort of human nature yes i think and they're always talking about living in the real world yes but at the same time are these sort of millionaires who are trying to create a different reality so yeah i was just wondering about the sort of characters yeah in i mean there. all of these inventions depend on a particular view of human nature, which is that human beings are selfish and we're never going to change and we're all self-interested. And instead of, instead of asking human beings to change their behaviour, like to, you know, we're living in a world where there's environmental catastrophe caused by uh, eating meat, instead of, you know, making the argument that people can change their ways, it's based on this idea of we're never going to change. So we just need to give people what they want, but produce it in a different way or, um, Instead of making it easier for women to have have babies, why don't we develop ways of of making it so that machines can be pregnant for you? Um, and it's of all of these technologies, pretty much all of them are all being developed by men. And most tech is, yeah. is developed by men, um, but they kind of disproportionately 
affect women. And when I was writing the book, I didn't think I was going to be writing a kind of feminist book. I don't think it is a feminist book necessarily, but the conclusions I come to is this is the kind of, this is the, there are unintended consequences that come on relying on technology to, to do things that we otherwise, you know, that otherwise came naturally to us. And it's women who are going to be suffering the unintended consequences of all of it. And not just mm -hmm. if we have sex robots and artificial wombs, but also um, just all of it really. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think in it as well, there's quite, some of it is quite comedic as well, I think. Yes. Almost. And the, the, the sex robots thing I thought was, so there's a bit where you talk about going into the factory and have you, have you seen Game of Thrones? I oh. haven't seen Game well, of Thrones. Well, there's a part that just terrible. reminded me where there's all these faceless, like all these masks just up in the, up in the, in the um, factory. And it's just the, this idea that it's a sex, you know, uh, factory that's just completely, you know, just really boring yes. and mundane. It's and, totally mundane. Yeah. And the people there, you know, they're, you know, checking their phones, eating sandwiches, gluing yeah. some nipples onto a, yeah, onto a sex just... doll. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was incredible. And, and uh, I think they're used to people coming around and seeing the factory where the factory just tells you a lot about um, how crazy human beings are, that there's um, 42 different styles of nipple, 14 different yeah. styles of labia. You, you wouldn't think that people had such specific ideas about what they wanted, yeah. but they do. Uh, but yeah, the factory itself is very impressive. I mean, the sex dolls are incredibly impressive, amazing things. But for the people working there, it's, as I say in the book, for them, that you know, they might as well be assembling toasters there. It's just their yeah. job. Yeah, just seems so, yeah, so dull. But yeah, the, the Game of Thrones reference for anyone is the faceless man thing. Have you seen that? Yeah, like faces. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, they just pick these faces off. Well, you can do that though. With, yeah, these, with, these, just... with these sex dolls, they've got interchangeable faces that snap on yeah. with magnets. So you can buy one body and you can have loads of different faces and races and, and different things. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so bizarre. But yeah, just the, um, the descriptions of them, yeah, I just thought were really interesting. And the craziest thing is that the very few male dolls they have, uh, the main line of male doll they have has exactly the same face as the guy who runs the company who made yeah. the sex doll to look exactly like himself <laughs> so that people could buy it and have sex with it. That is <laughs> another level. Like It's of, a total other level, yeah. Yeah, egotism, <laughs> isn't it? That's mad. Um, so yeah, one of the, uh, you, you've sort of touched on it already, but it's this idea, another thing that I took from it, that we are, rather than actually addressing the root cause problems, we're getting into a stage where we're just, technology will fix it for us or will, mm. you know, let us continue to live in these very damaging ways. Do you think that sort of yeah, is I, the future? I think, I think we are living in an age where we expect technology to save us and not just mm. to save us, but um, that technology will allow us to kind of have our cake and eat it, that we can be selfish and it will be fine because technology will find our, a way for us to carry on living the way that we live without making any sacrifices. And to an extent, some technology can do that, but technology always has unintended consequences that even the cleverest person couldn't think about. And it's something else I talk about in the book that even Steve Jobs had no idea we'd all become so addicted to our phones. Yeah. And when he launched it, I mean, it's a quote at the beginning of the book is that when he launched it, he's like, I think we've got a great product here and I know we're entering a really, really competitive market, but I think we're yeah. going to go for it and we're going to try and get 1% of the market. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah. You know, he, you he, might he had that, no yeah. idea. <laughs> So nobody knows. And um, actually, I think that human beings, you know, if you, if you want to have power 
over the chaos of the world. The way to have power is to not rely on technology to give you that power, but to be nimble and to be prepared mm. to change your behavior in the face of challenges and also to sit with the discomfort of knowing that you can't control everything. Um, because ultimately, I think that's what all of these these technologies that I look at in the book, what they are is they are um, they promise to give human beings control, but in fact, what they give you is an illusion of control and they, they, they cause you to, they are giving us a way of avoiding problems, avoiding answering questions like, why is it that some people want a partner um, who exists purely for their pleasure? Why is it that um, we all eat so much meat, even though we know we don't need that much? Or why is it so, why are we all so afraid of death? They're giving us a way to avoid answering those questions. They kind of paper over those problems with an extra layer of complexity by saying, you don't have to think about all of that mess. Yeah. Here's something that's just going to solve it for you. Yeah. And I think real power comes from saying, okay, I'm going to investigate the problem. Yeah. And I suppose they're sort of the things that we've always been, humanity's always been concerned with. Yeah. And now we're like, oh, we, don't have, to, we don't have to be concerned with that Exactly. Anymore. They've always defined us. They've yeah. constricted us, but also kind of, uh, um, they've, it's part of the rich kind of texture of life, really. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, One, <laughs> a sort of a, a thing that I was looking at that made me, it really clicked with your book was because what's going on in football at the minute. It's like with the video system referees, mm. the problem before that commentators would always say was that we don't have good enough referees, mm. but now the referees are still, you know, they didn't put money into better training or, you know, improving wages and things like that. They've just got this video technology and everyone's still like, this isn't working. It's, it's still like, not working. Exactly. You've not addressed the actual, you've not actual solved problem. the actual problem. You've yeah, just put yeah. a, and we're, we're doing this so much, you know, we just, there is, there's so many examples and, you know, some of them I talk about in, in the book about like when I was staying in this really loud hotel, at this hotel where they were playing all this loud music and then the hotel provided everyone with earplugs, but they should just turn the music down. Yeah. And it's the same thing. <laughs> it's you know, quite simple. Yeah, it's very simple <laughs> stuff. Or, or in America particularly, I know like um, you can buy these melatonin pills because everybody's having problems sleeping and partly that's mm. because everybody's on their devices all the time. And instead of telling people to kind of put your phone away, chill out a bit before you go to sleep, it's like, no, here, take some pills. And then those pills have side effects. So you can take side pills to kind of catch yeah. the side yeah. effects and you just end up getting <laughs> lost down this because we live in a system where we're all supposed to be buying stuff all the time. And actually what yeah. I think has been interesting this year is the extent to which we have been wanting this vaccine for so long and we've been wanting technology to save us, but actually we have been able to save ourselves to an extent by drastically changing our behavior very quickly. So I think, I think yeah. we are capable of changing our behavior when we really believe we have to. Yeah. Um, it's just, we're a bit, we're a bit lazy or a bit, we're a bit unwilling to, to try it. So I, I think I have a more positive view of human nature, which is, I think people are capable of, of change. It's just, we just need to have the courage to pick a more difficult path than the path mm. offered by people who are saying they can sell us products that will solve all our problems. Yeah. Because that's what they're doing at the end of the day, they're selling products, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. yeah. It's about shifting items. Yeah. But it, so when did you start? Doing like because it's obviously very, very extensively researched. So when did you I, start I, I wrote it over a five-year period. I did the reporting and writing over a five-year period. I wasn't exclusively doing that. I yeah. had my daughter during that time and was doing other things as well. Um, I started. So I started with the death section, and that was in uh, twenty fourteen that I started doing the reporting for that. Uh -huh. And then sex robots, I was doing a lot uh, in twenty seventeen, and the food bit and the birth bit, um, I was doing more recently. Yeah. It's just so interesting that it has come out 
you know, the ship, because like you say, it's talking a lot about people needing to really change behaviours. Yeah. And that's what we've had to do this year, like, like you said. Yeah. We've and also just the extent to which we, I think I really benefited from the fact that I'm not a tech journalist because mm. uh, tech journalists, first of all, they have to, um, they have to maintain relationships with the people they interview. And I don't, so I can be <laughs> yeah. quite critical of them. And the other thing is I can ask really obvious questions like, does this work? <laughs> Would yeah, it be easier yeah, if yeah. we just ate less meat instead of growing, growing chicken meat in a lab? Or, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's not embarrassing for me because, you know, I'm not pretending to be. Yeah. And so, so much of it was about the stories that we want to tell. And, you know, there, there's so much, we're so used to looking at things in awe, like bits of technology, like, wow, this is going to save us, but not thinking, okay, well, couldn't we achieve the same means, the, the same ends by other means? Mm. And uh, what are the other consequences of, of, of using all of this? Yeah. Um, so I think we're living in an age where we, we really believe that tech is going to save us and we're really frustrated when it can't, but we have to remember that we can save ourselves. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's really interesting uh, for music as well. Like what are the consequences of so like the algorithms mm. in music streaming platforms and also just music streaming platforms in general. Yes. Like what, are, we've got these amazing things. Yeah, they're great, but what are the consequences of them, you know? Well, uh, I mean, there are, there are many consequences as somebody who's, who's lived across both eras. First consequence is that musicians can't make money in the same way. And so it's incredibly expensive to, to go and see music live, which is, mm. you know, one of the most joyful experiences of my life is I've, you know, and as a young kid, I used to go and, and, and see music live. So, you know, that is, is, um, is certainly a kind of very sad thing. And then you have the loss of the album, which was a curated piece of work, a journey that the artist would take you on, that you would go through. I mean, I used to, when these albums used to come out, I would sit and listen. I mean, I was a weird kid, but I, I would sit and <laughs> listen to them, you know, in sequence, in order, because that yeah. was the intention. Um, and that yeah. has kind of gone away. So you get the, the personality of the album has kind of been... Uh, yeah, been removed. But then there are benefits as well. I'm sure people are being introduced to new music that they wouldn't have thought of. But there isn't, for me, there was so much joy about being part of a human network of, of people who would recommend things to you and picking things up from your friends and your friends making you mix tapes rather than, you know, the algorithm yeah. making you your own uh, mixtape. Um, but it does mean that you can, there's such an enormous amount of stuff out there that you can have access to and you don't have to be a, a, a collector of Japanese vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. There was, um, James A. Custer did a, I think he does a podcast and he wrote a book about trying to listen to all the music during 2016. So he, he thought that was the best year for music. And he's tried to listen to everything basically. And you could never, he well, at some point he will be, but it would take a long time just for one year the amount of stuff that's coming out. So I suppose mm. it does help in that sense that you can, like say, you don't have to be a collector of obscure yes. music to now listen to, to, to these things. But you have to have an entry point to find that stuff. And I think, whereas yeah. in, in the past, in the age of, you know, you were so, people were always dependent on record labels, what they had decided to promote or how much money they'd put into your music video. If you're looking, thinking about the eighties and the nineties, it was all about MTV. Um, and then, Nowadays, it's about what kind of social media presence you have. And, you know, I think there is an illusion that artists are able to kind of cut through by being inventive or original enough. But I think actually, if I was a musician now, I would find it very difficult to, you, you know, you need a proper marketing strategy behind you to cut through. I yeah. Think, so. But you always did. It's just in a different form. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah, do you think that technology is sort of working for musicians now, I suppose, because you go back to even like Handel, the printing press was a great, although it had been around for a while by the time he was uh, making music, that was a great thing for musicians because they it gave them agency and they, they could go away from, you know, court patronage and things like that. But do you see that as sort of technology almost working against them now? Well, I think it, technology is working against musicians in terms of musicians being able to make a living out of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we're talking about money here and it, I think it's very, very difficult to make a living as a musician now, unless, and, and particularly this year when nobody is performing yeah. live, it's very difficult to make, to make a living because of, you know, people aren't prepared to pay for music in yeah. the same way and people don't go out and buy albums and the release of an album is not an event in the way mm. it was and musicians are expected to give so much away for free and a lot of people consume music on YouTube, for example, you know, um, as, as well as the streaming services. So they you know, people just don't expect to pay for it. So I think, yeah, I think in a way, but then again, it's, it's allowing people to collaborate with people all over the world. It's allowing people to have fans from all over the world. Mm. It's a double-edged sword really, isn't it? And also just the incredible, I mean, I, I was, I was, I've been in lots of bands <laughs> and I uh, was started making music on computers sort of 20 years ago and then you needed an enormous computer and you needed lots of yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> in the 90s when I was younger I, you know I had a four track I had all the stuff the idea now that if you're just great at playing the guitar and you write good music yeah. that people can find you um, is wonderful and that does come from technology enabling you know Technology demystifying the production process. Yeah, yeah. And, and allowing people to just put their stuff out there. Everyone's sort of got the keys to the gates now, haven't they? They yeah. can sort of do it, do it themselves, which is yeah. interesting. I mean, I, I bought, I've got this book at home, using your home four-track recorder and, and sort of trying to sit and read this stuff and really <laughs> learn it as the nerdy girl that I was. But it felt, you know, I used to go to the guitar shops on Denmark Street and... Uh, talk to the people there and it, it felt so much like there were gatekeepers and it wasn't, it wasn't enough to just be a good musician. Yeah. You had to also know all this technical stuff or know people in record companies, but whether or not that's a romanticized notion of what happens now, I don't know whether or not if you were just a brilliant musician, you could get the, you could find your audience without having access to gatekeepers. I, I yeah. don't know. Can you tell us anything about your bands? You mentioned <laughs> Well, my I, was I wasn't very good. That. I wasn't very good. Sadly, wasn't very good. I was uh, so I was, of course, the lead singer and the lead guitarist because nice. I'm no shrinking wallflower. I was going out with the drummer, um, who was the only only uh, bloke in the band. So it was me and my two best female friends, who were the two girls we all used to go to gigs together, and then uh, the drummer. And yeah, we played a few gigs around London. Then we went nice. to university. We split up, and then I started making music on computers, which wasn't very good. And fortunately, none of it went on the internet, which is a great thing because <laughs> it would be very embarrassing for me today if it did. But you know, that is always what I wanted to do with my life: is I wanted to be, yeah. I wanted to be a musician. What What was your band called? Come oh on, God. <laughs> We, had it, we, we didn't even have a good name. We were called Psyker, my first band. And it's my second bad. band was called YKK because our, 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 my bassist made this joke that um, everyone already had it on all the zips of all of their clothes. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> yeah, it wasn't nice. very, yeah, there's, there's many good reasons Your why I'm not a marketing was already done for you, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> it was a good thing for the world. That I, you know, I had this very romantic notion of what it would be 
to be a musician as well. I didn't realise the extent to which it's about being a product and being packaged and sold. And yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it is funny though because it's 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 not something I talk about a lot. You know, the fact that I I wanted to be a musician, but it was really for many years of my life was the kind of driving force of my life. I was so into the music that I listened to and so enjoyed yeah. going out and seeing bands. It was all I ever wanted to do. And even though I'm you know, I've gone on to do some some really exciting things. Part of me thinks the 14-year-old me would be really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot of people feel like that, though. I think I've heard a lot of, you know, comedians mm. and things who, you know, have these amazing careers and, you know, incredibly successful, like, yeah, I really want to be a musician. It's because it, it touches a deeper part of you, music. Yeah. It's such a, it's a religion and it, it, it's, it's something that, completely can completely take over you mm. and um yeah i think a lot of people a lot of a lot of people share that view that it's kind of um you know especially the the years when you are a teenager when you discover music there's such you're there's it's such a you're you're forming your identity at that point and it's such kind of powerful stuff that can be totally outside of your world that it can it can become everything to you yeah Definitely. I think the 14 year old me would be very excited that I'm here doing this podcast. Would yeah, there you go. Journalism was worth it if I got invited into Jimmy Hendrix's bedroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. But at the same time, was very flamboyant as like yes. a performer and a person. So it's, yeah, it's such a mix of. Yeah. I mean, he was a great, he was a great front he? person. He was a great entertainer. Yeah. And th those are different skills, you know, the skills of being a fantastic um, musician and being a, mm. a, a front person of a band. There are several bands that I know that have musicians, have front people who are not very musically talented because it's a completely different skill. Mm. So, um, yeah. Maybe yeah, no. a good time to play a, play a song if you'd like to on our. So we, yes. we've, these have been basically these are like renovated louder mm -hmm. speakers and the Bang & Olufsen record player is the same model that Hendrix used and the <laughs> amp has all been redone so it's basically recreating what, what he, it would have sounded yeah, like what he listened here, yeah. to in this room and yeah we've got some some of his Shall I pick something then? So this is the UK album cover that he Yes which is different from Yeah that he didn't like and he didn't I don't think he had sanctioned any of his album covers at all. They're all basically. <gasps> I'm really interested. What I'm interested in is about, and there must be books about this, but about race and Jimi Hendrix and the way mm. that when he came to the UK, he must, he was fetishized as this kind of exotic, yeah. talented creature. He, he also talks about it being a lot better here. People aren't being as hung up. Obviously, and still yet awful. still, he would have been, yeah. I mean, he was marketed as this kind of, Exactly. Exotic it's creature. Other, he was yes, like, yes. Yeah. This other person, yeah. When was the... So it was cassettes when you it were It was cassettes. When it, it was, CDs were a thing. So we're talking about the early 90s when I was buying most of my record collection and CDs were a thing, but they were expensive. Mm. And I was saving up what was left over of my lunch money. And so I'd buy cassettes. Yeah. And I still have this huge collection of cassettes that my husband wants oh, to nice. chuck out. <laughs> Because I bought everything again on CDs as well, and then my my son, I bought my I bought my kids a CD player. My son, when he was like very small, used to love putting CDs on, and he really loved Jimi Hendrix and nicked my Jimi Hendrix CDs after years <laughs> of him dancing around to stuff. So my CD collection's been gutted, but my tape oh, okay. collection is pristine and that. completely yeah. useless. <laughs> 
Where did nobody stolen those ones? <laughs> <Isn't that strange? laughs> you, yeah, you need an old car with a tape deck. Yeah. Get some news for No, you. it's like I don't know what to do with all those tapes because I can't throw them out because I was really very intense in my love for my music collection when I was younger and would arrange yeah. them all in a particular order. And just the idea of throwing that out is like saying, oh, that doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very sentimental. Oh no, I, yeah, I would be exactly yeah. the same. It, it would be such a betrayal to throw it out. So now I've got, you know, 400 cassettes <laughs> in storage. <laughs> there was, yeah, yeah. Well, there was a hipster thing. I don't know if it's still going on, but I remember this record company were putting all their stuff on cassettes. It was like a hipster record company that were doing it. I was just like, I really don't get that one. But I get records, definitely. CDs, yeah. Again, in the car, but yeah, tapes. Having to fast forward and rewind. Yeah, get to the pain. Get to the song. <laughs> That's another reason why I really loved albums, yeah. was because I was being forced to listen to it in sequence because yeah. I was buying it on cassette. So do you, do you still listen to albums now? Like, do you make Some a conscious albums. effort to listen um, to new I don't really listen to much new stuff. Um, I listen to some new stuff. I buy albums. Yeah. Um, I don't really, I mean, I, I still buy CDs, so I don't really download albums, but I listen to them digitally, but I, <clears throat> I like having them mainly also because I, I give, give them to my kids. Yeah. <laughs> so I buy it on CD and then, you know, put it into my computer and then my kids have the CD. So nice. Um, so yes, I do still buy albums, but not mm. tons. And probably, uh, you know, I don't buy a lot of new bands and new stuff. Actually, no, I, bought, I buy some things, but um, not as much as I used to, certainly. Yeah. Well, that's been, it's quite rare now, isn't it, to actually have the physical, like have music as an actual commodity. Like now yeah. it's much more of a, um, like stream, it's like commodified experience, isn't it? Where they, yeah. you, know, you are the product that's yes. sort of being sold, aren't you? Yes. Through their advertising. And, you know, I've heard that songs are being written in order to kind of please the algorithm and they have to have a kind of amazing yeah. first five seconds in order to, <laughs> yeah. to make that impact, and which is, which is kind of insane. Did Especially when we're talking about 1983, A Merman I Should Turn To Me, yeah. 13 Minutes of Glory. And the best bit is about nine minutes in, incidentally. <laughs> so you really have to stick around for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a real, uh, yeah, long one. <laughs> um, well, yeah, have you heard the... I listened the other day to the first AI made song, like entirely composed song. I haven't. I should have heard it. What's it called? It's called Daddy's Car, I think, which is a really <gasps> weird name. But um, it's not. It's not very good. Have you Have you heard it? No. <laughs> no. I've read. <laughs> it's um, not great. I've read. There was a, a piece in the Guardian, a comment piece that was written entirely by an algorithm, oh, right. um, which was really convincing. But that oh, probably right. says more about the state of comment journalism today yeah, than yeah. the state of AI. Um, so yeah. I'm glad if the music wasn't quite up to scratch. But it will be. We're just providing so much data with our listening habits and with what works, and eventually it, it, computers will be able to yeah. just churn it all out. Would you go to see Hendrix as a hologram? No, I would not go to see Hendrix <laughs> as a hologram. It would be it would be very sad for me because again, it comes back down to this idea of wanting to possess something or wanting to control something or, or to wanting to make something exactly how you want it, mm. which is what technology promises us that it can do, which actually rips away the real authentic experience of that things are imperfect and weird and different. And sometimes people's guitar strings fly off or someone throws a beer bottle and <laughs> the person reacts. And it's in those 
spaces that the magic happens, that the weirdness happens and that yeah. innovation happens and that really exciting ideas happen. And the idea of having some, you know, I'd much rather watch some old footage. Although actually so much of the old, there's not very much old footage. So much of it is really badly shot footage of Jimi Hendrix, yeah. like, you know, the camera's on the wrong thing. He's doing a guitar solo and they're on Noel Redding. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, and, you know, there are those few bits like there's that um, acoustic, the, the, there's the footage of him playing. You know, th th there's just very, there's very little stuff and what there is is incomplete and kind of not yeah. uh, and imperfect. But I would rather have that than to have something that's exactly how I want it to be because that's yeah. not him and that's not real. And all that is going to be is, is an echo chamber of what we already have rather than something new and fresh and exciting, which yeah. is what those live experiences are supposed to be. I'm sounding like an old stick in the mud, aren't I? I don't mean to be. I mean, I do think some <laughs> technology is good, but what I love about music is um, the randomness of it and the, yeah, the, yeah. Um, the way that it connects with some part of the human experience. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I mean, technology is great if it facilitates that, but if it removes our ability to do that, then it undermines the whole thing. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's one of the issues in a lot, a lot of like, yeah, on, with your book and a lot of technology you're talking about, it's they're trying to convince you that this is the experience, like this is the experience when it's not, it's never going to be. This yes. is, it's always going to be a simulation. Yes, yes. No matter how good the technology is, no matter how, you know, immersive yes. it might be, it's not the actual yeah. thing. And would you rather have reality with all of the possibilities of things not going right mm. than a simulation where you know everything's going to be exactly how you want it to be? And yeah. I, I know what I would take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So this is Handel or Hendrix is the name of the quiz. Okay. So basically it's either a quote or something that, you know, a fact from their lives. And you have to say handle. Yeah, okay. It's, okay. it's fairly simple. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'll, gi I'll give you five quick fire questions. So um, I had nothing but a wish sandwich, two pieces of bread, wishing I had some meat between them. Hendrix. Whether I was in my body or out of my body as I wrote it, I know not. God knows. Handle. Blank understands effect better than any of us. When he chooses, he strikes like a thunderbolt. Handle. I should be sorry if I only entertain them. I wish to make them better. Handle. Whose father apparently disapproved of their music career? Oh, Hendrix. Very good. <laughs> well, I'd say four and a half out of five because apparently both of their fathers disapproved. Oh! A little trick question at the end. <laughs> I love the idea of Handel's father disapproving of his music. Yeah, very well done. I'm a really big nerd. Yeah. And I, I, I normally keep my nerdiness under wraps, but you have discovered it and made it public. So thank you. No, excellent. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you very much yeah, for joining us, Jenny. It's been such, so good to speak with it's you. It's been such a total, total pleasure. I love this museum and I love Jimi Hendrix and um, it's such an honour. So thank you. Thanks very much for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Hannah and Hendrix in London in partnership with Art Fund. 